G'day guys, and welcome back to Glory Days for our first ever episode with an international flavour that looks back on the amazing victory by Zimbabwe against England in the 1992 World Cup cricket clash in Aubrey that stunned the cricketing world. A huge thanks to episode sponsors, Premier Building and Construction, who pride themselves on being community focused with traditional values for clients. PBC work on a variety of commercial, industrial and residential projects with an emphasis on leaving a local legacy while forming strong partnerships with clients to achieve successful outcomes. We'd also like to thank Essence of Harrogate. It's a local beverage business in Wodonga that is bringing global to local. Get to enjoy luxury, alcoholic and non-alcoholic flavours from around the world without leaving your house. Check out essenceofharrogate.com.au. And just like they were back in 1992, Aubrey City are still supporting major events in the region. Okay, let it rip, Robbie. Zimbabweans have had to be incredibly thrifty, make something out of nothing. If you think Rhodesia before we got independence at 80, 1970s, we went through a terrorist guerrilla war for 10 years. We got sanctions imposed on us because we had declared UDI, which was the United uh, Declaration of Independence in 1963, I think it was. And so we were sanctioned from the world. We couldn't get fuel, industries suffered, so everything. We always had to fix everything or come up with always making a plan, you know? So all these things, that's how, how we were. So when we came to play against the top players, came up, made a plan and got on with it, you know? You couldn't just win to say it's oh, we're just going to be no good. <laughs> Yeah, and it's still to to this day, you know, you, you know, we had our own type of uh, people and we had to go through and do. Yeah, so we're always resilient and uh, have to turn second hand into first hand and fix, repair. Yeah, so that was one of our, our traits of Zimbabwe. Zimbabwe were one of those great teams in world sport. No one expected them to win. And suddenly they're playing England, who are qualified for the semi-final stage of the World Cup. So we'll turn up and we'll have a jolly time, and good luck to Zimbabwe. And then it just turned horrible for England. Edo Brandes, my goodness. Edo Brandes was a chicken farmer, they all had other proper jobs, and they played cricket when they could, practice on a Wednesday or Thursday night down the club. And you just sat there not quite believing what you were seeing. But fantastic for them. And Good old Edo Brandes, I mean, the most famous chicken farmer in sport. When it comes to sporting events in Albury, Wodonga, it's hard to think of a bigger event than the World Cup cricket match played at the Lavington Sports Club Oval on March 18, 1992, between England and the cricketing minnows of Zimbabwe. In fact, on serious reflection, it is the highest profile sporting event ever to be played on the border. Touring sides had played before against regional teams from the local area. World Series cricket under Kerry Packer had hit town in the late 70s. New South Wales pre-season touring teams with Don Brabham had been to town on southern tours in the 30s. And England, just 14 months previous to the World Cup clash, took on New South Wales at the Lavington Sports Club Oval. But never had two teams playing a round of World Cup tournament been anywhere near the city. The English side featured some of its all-time greatest players, with Lord Ian Botham, skipper Graham Gooch, Alan Lamb and Alex Stewart among the highly fancied and well-performed English team. The Zimbabwean team? Well, they came from a very different background. 
with very little first-class cricket being played at the time and only half a dozen clubs. They had qualified via the ICC pre-tournament process as they still did not have full test playing status and were an associate member of the International Cricket Council. Whilst the World Cup tournament was a huge focus to win for the power nations, the real pressure for the club cricketers from Zimbabwe had already been played out in the qualifying process. As opening bowler, Ed Edward Branders explains. No, I was amateur. Davey Hutt was paid. And I think it was only him. I think even Andy Flower might have at that stage, because his debut game was against Sri Lanka. I think he only got started employed when we got test status at the end of 92. Everyone else was uh, day jobs. Some were farmers, owned farms, solicitors, lawyers. All we did, we played club cricket. We probably got first-class cricket come into the roundabout when we got test status. That was one of the prerequisites that we had a first-class competition. Initially, there were only three teams that played in it. Probably the 92 side, to be realistic, we probably selected from about 18, 20 players. I suppose eight would pick themselves and then the last three or four or five positions for the touring team were picked from another 10, 11, 12 players. Prior to the World Cup, didn't have a coach. The senior players did the coaching. We had a coach that came and joined us, Don Topley, who was actually from Essex, and he was still playing there. And he, somehow he must have come across that, oh, we need a coach, and he came and, yeah. yeah so, Edo, you guys actually didn't have an official coach leading into yeah. the World Cup. I can't remember exactly when he tagged. I, I'm not sure if he joined us in Zimbabwe then came here or, or we met here. I, <laughs> that was the first out-and-out coach for the team that we had. There were match fees that were very nominal and, you know, Everything was on the tour was paid for and we got a daily allowance of that. Our situation was quite different. We used to play in the South African Curry Cup, but when we got independence in 1980, cricket had to either stay with there and then be isolated with apartheid and all of that, or we broke and then joined the ICC. When we went to ICC, our whole first class playing fell away and then we slowly started English counties probably came pre-season, played us in March before we played three-day three, three day games then. Then we had a few young West Indies, young Australia, those type of teams come in September, October, which was prior to the summer season of the southern states, you know, like Australia and that. As, you know, county uh, test status, A sides come out. England A came out just before test status. Going back to that, so I went to the ICC, so we joined the ICC. So our first ICC was 1983. World Cup was 1983. So we had to qualify in 82 at the ICC. In those days, it was only one team from all the ICC nations qualified for the World Cup. We qualified for 83 World Cup England. I was just prior to, I started playing in 85. So that was 83. Our first game was against Australia and we beat Australia. Our very first international with Lily, Marsh, Border, (laughs) all of them. You qualified for the World Cup. There was a lump sum that you could pay as a participation fee. Now, that had to, because there was no other income coming in from tours or first-class cricket or anything like that. So that money had to sustain Zimbabwe for four years till the next World Cup. Then we had to qualify again, which the next one was, that was my first one. We had to qualify again. So we had to qualify. When we went to play the ICC, that was our critical tournament because we had a win to get revenue for the next four years till the next World Cup. We played in three ICC tournaments. We never lost a game and you had to win it to go through. And then after we left, we qualified, got test status in 92. The next 
ICC they drafted and it was three qualified from ICC. So yeah, yeah to me that is an incredible record that we've got knowing how important it was. If we hadn't have got that World Cup income, I wonder what would have happened to cricket. Oh, yeah, the board was all, you know, the administration was uh, the same as us amateurs. And they did a lot, love of the, the game, you know. That yeah. that was the pressure that was played in those. The World Cup almost, for a better word, was, yeah, it was one but like a bonus. We knew that we had cricket continuing. And obviously, when we go to the World Cup, we, we you know, tried our best. I've thought about it often afterwards. That's real pressure, you know. <laughs> that is exactly right. Because, well, you know, so, you know, even here we just had the, you know, ashes and England lost and that's fine. They just go to the ashes two years time and it continues, you know, there's so much funding and that that happened. If we had have lost, well, they might have been any more cricket, you know, <laughs> or it would be very shoestring. That to me is uh, pressure. This was England's final pool match before the semi-finals, in which they had already qualified for in four days' time. For Zimbabwe, they were just hoping to put up a respectable performance to complete its campaign that was yet to register a win, despite some very competitive performances, including their four for 312 against Sri Lanka in their first match of the tournament in New Zealand, where Andy Flower made a century on debut. The result that played out on a picture-perfect autumn day in Albury stunned the cricketing world as a barrel-chested chicken farmer from Harare, Edo Branders, and his band of farmers, lawyers, accountants, teammates played out their own version of David versus Goliath as Branders tore through the English batting to inspire one of the country's greatest ever sporting moments, a result that was to catapult the nation's acceptance into the International Cricket Council as a fully-fledged test-playing nation. I hope you enjoy Lions Amongst the Chickens. So how the hell does the Lavington Sports Club Oval become a venue for the 1992 World Cup, hosted jointly by Australia and New Zealand? A World Cup that for the first time would feature coloured clothing, white balls and matches played under lights. Recently inducted Cricket Albury-Donga Hall of Famer and in 1992, the coordinator of the inaugural Albury-Donga Festival of Sport, Graham Hicks explains how it all started six years before the big day as a gradual rollout of first-class games proved a masterstroke. I guess we all felt together that there was a, an opportunity to, to get involved in bringing something to Albury-Donga that was a little different. I was involved with the Albury and Border Cricket Association as Vice President. Bruce Stanton was the Chairman. Bruce and myself had been great mates throughout life and lived close by. He said to me one night, we've got a real problem, haven't we, with the media? We really don't get much exposure and how do we get some exposure? And I said, well, it really is up to cricket itself to find a place to a niche in their market where the media want us. So maybe the opportunity would be to look at bringing some high-class cricket to Albury-Wodonga, some real quality stuff that hadn't been seen before. So that's where it started from. This was an opportunity for Bruce to really put a stamp on his uh, tenure as the president of the Albury and Border Cricket Association. Well, that was the idea, was to really now go out and find out how to do it. And uh, If you do the hard yards first, the rewards all come through at the end of the day. And I think the thing that uh, stuck out in our own minds was that if we uh, were able to attract not necessarily world events initially, but perhaps some New South Wales events that would show the facilities that we had here at Lavington, 
provide an opportunity for New South Wales Country Games, etc., etc., because they hadn't been played here in Uruwodonga. And this is what we were able to do, was to demonstrate to New South Wales cricket what we were able to do here by providing lead-up games. And I think that's a really important point. At the same time, um, I'd been talking to Albury City Council about developing an Albury-Wodonga Festival of Sport. The, while the council was interested, I remember the mayor and deputy saying to me at one stage, look, it's a great idea, but it'll never happen. And that just gives you a bit of ticker. I don't think you're right. We'll go and see what we can do. And I remember going home to a wife that night and said, well, I've just heard the greatest lot of garbage, but never mind, we'll give it a go and we'll see what happens. The plan was, OK, well, we get Lavington, which I was on the board of the Lavington Sports Club at the time, said to Lavington, well, I think there's an opportunity to make more use of the Oval, make more use of the facility here, and perhaps bring a really good economic impact to Aubrey-Wodonga by developing a festival of sport and encouraging some great events to come here to Aubrey-Wodonga. This is all in 1986. The first letters were written uh, that year, and once we set up some information with Aubrey and Border Cricket Association, rode off to New South Wales. The initial idea was to try and get a game here for the Bicentenary, 1988. It's interesting because in um, 1988, I think the first game that was of some note was, or the New South Wales seconds actually, versus New South Wales country. And one of the blokes I remember picking up at the airport who was in uh, in the uh, Australian Academy at the time was um, Michael Bevan. Um, after that, there was a Sheffield Shield game here in 1989 where we had uh, New South Wales played Victoria or showed the uh, administrators the quality of the facility here, the amount of work ethic that some people would put in to make it happen. Soon after... After the Sheffield Shield game, there was um, a request from the Australian Cricket Board to see whether the facility might be available for use for a game between New South Wales and the English eleven. The reason for that is England had been knocked out of the Benson and Hedges competition of the year. Some anxiety that they didn't have further practice games leading into test matches and leading into the one-day series and so forth. Decided that they'd try and get a game in out in the country somewhere and recognising what had happened here in the past and the, the, the way that teams had been looked after, they decided that they'd try and get a game set up here between England and New South Wales. New South Wales were the, the uh, Shield champions at the time. They wanted a good quality game. Well, New South Wales gave them a bit of a hiding, to be perfectly honest. Uh, it was a great game and it was a great opportunity to get back involved with, uh, with the English side. There was also another twist to the event, with the original draw being changed at late notice to accommodate the return of South Africa to world cricket after in 1970, the ICC banned South Africa from participating in internationally recognised cricket due to its strict anti-apartheid policies that banned non-white cricketers playing for South Africa or touring South Africa. This decision, arguably when South Africa was the strongest team in world cricket, cut short the test careers of hugely talented players such as Graham Pollock, Barry Richards and Mike Proctor. Many promising players later emigrated in order to play, whilst others never played test cricket. One of those players to leave was Zimbabwe's Graham Hick, who would play for England against Zimbabwe at Lavington. The late change in the draw did not phase the local organising committee, as the other Graham Hicks explains. The original allotment of a game was between uh, Zimbabwe and uh, the West Indies. And because of South Africa coming back into the competition after 20 years of being on the outer, uh, they were brought back in after the apartheid disqualification in 1970. They came back in in 1992. 
it was decided to bring them in and make it, I think it was a nine-team competition at the time. Um, and that means there had to be a change to the draw. It was almost a last-minute thing. It didn't worry us too much. Um, it was a real positive for us because we knew the players well. We knew what their wants and needs were. They knew what our uh, city was like. They knew what our accommodation was like. And they decided that they'd uh, happily accept all Wodonga and we were happy to have them. No real drama at all, really. I mean, you know, uh, it didn't cause us a great problem. I think the only thing that became a little bit of a problem just quietly prior to the game was perhaps we had a little bit of a scare at the Country Comfort Hotel and that was a bit of a problem. It was about the time of one of the Iraq wars and um, a lot of people weren't too happy with what England was doing and there was a bit of a scare on the Country Comfort Hotel and it was evacuated and uh, quite unbelievable for Albury Wodonga but not the night before the game but about one or two nights before that. There were a couple of players that still hadn't arrived and they were probably the main uh, bones of contention I suppose. Hicks was also appointed the England team liaison officer and he reflected on another moment with an English touring team that, as a 12-year-old, he and his father, Clem, got to experience some 23 years earlier. Dad was good enough to play against the Poms in 1959. We were living at Holbrook at the time and Dad had the Ampol service station at the northern end of town. And during the 1959 game in Wagga, a couple of really good guys and a couple of guys that, uh, you know, were really hot-headed uh, Englishmen playing cricket. And I remember um, he made a few runs against them very early in the innings and um, one guy said to him, uh, you do that again, I'll knock those glasses off your jolly head. But then he made really good contacts with Colin Cowdery and a few others. And the Poms went off to the ACT to play in Canberra the next day after they'd been at Wagga. Unbeknownst to us, as they came home from Canberra to go back to Melbourne, again by bus, they decided to pull up at the service station in Holbrook and say day which was really nice. But not only that, they all jumped out of the bus and we played a game of cricket on the driveway at the service station at Holbrook. The English cricket team sitting on the driveway at Holbrook way back 1959. Unbelievable. So for those who say that England's never played at Holbrook, they have. And they get out, out of the bus and want to have a game of cricket on the driveway just as a bit of fun because they had it, Colin Cowdery had a bit of fun with that on the day and they got out of the bus. And, you know, there's, there's a team there like Peter May, you know, one of England's great captains. Colin Cowdery, one of the, you know, uh, most graceful batsmen of all time. And uh, Tom Graveney and, of course, the wicket keeper was Godfrey Evans. And I remember Godfrey getting off the truck and he had a broken finger on the... He'd broken it the day before or thereabouts and uh, he was having a bit of trouble with that, but he still got out and had a game of cricket. And then you've got, you know, people like Brian Statham and, and you know, the spinners, Tony Locke, Laker, Frank Tyson, Peter Loder, and perhaps they had the inspiration to give you a kick along and say, look, we can do something ourselves here in this city. To ensure the wicket was suitable for such a prestigious event, Cricket Australia and Cricket New South Wales engaged the services of renowned curator Peter Leroy to advise and monitor preparation that was being headed up by Lavington Sports Club Oval groundsman Dean Valenti. Leroy went on to spend 14 years as the head curator of the Sydney Cricket Ground. England were making their second appearance at a regional ground in this World Cup, having nine days earlier played Sri Lanka in Ballarat, where they had sensationally checked out of their original accommodation the night before the match because the beds were too small. Despite the drama around the sleeping arrangements, England remained unbeaten after six matches with a convincing 106-run victory over Sri Lanka. In between the match at Ballarat and Albury, 
England travelled to New Zealand, where the Kiwis inflicted the Poms' first loss of the tournament in Wellington on Sunday, the 15th of March, chasing down England's modest 200 with seven wickets and 55 balls to spare. England were due to fly out of Wellington on the evening of the match, but due to the treacherous flying conditions in Wellington, the flights were cancelled and the English were forced to fly out the following Monday. Further delays meant that England team did not arrive in Sydney until 6.45pm, missing the connecting flight to Albury where they were to stay on the Monday night. So it was a night in Sydney ahead of the morning flight to Albury, arriving safely late Tuesday morning ahead of a training session at the Lavington Ground. Meanwhile, in the Zimbabwe camp, things were going much smoother, with the side enjoying solid net sessions on Monday and Tuesday. Zimbabwe were led by 35-year-old David Houghton, a brilliant all-round sportsman. Houghton would captain Zimbabwe in its first test match later in 1992 and became the oldest player to make a test century on debut in that same inaugural test versus India. He was 40 years of age when he played the last of his 22 test matches, finishing with an average of 43. He still holds the record of the most test match runs scored without a duck. The 1992 World Cup was also the start of Andy Flowers' brilliant career with Zimbabwe. His debut game against Sri Lanka in New Zealand resulted him in becoming the first ever batsman to make an ODI century on debut in a World Cup match. Such was Flowers' standing in world cricket, by the time he retired, he was legitimately compared with Australian cricketing legend Adam Gilchrist as the greatest ever wicketkeeper batsman to have played the game. Flower played 63 tests for Zimbabwe, scored almost 5,000 runs at an average of 51.5 and taking 151 catches and nine stumpings. 213 one-day internationals, scoring just under 7,000 runs at an average of 35.3. He took 141 catches and made 32 stumpings. He holds the Zimbabwean record for the most test career runs. The highest test batting average and the most ODI career runs. On retirement, he was the only Zimbabwean in the ICC's top 100 all-time batting rankings at number 31, putting him in the company of Brian Lara, ranked 23, Sachin Tendulkar, 29, and he was equal on 31 with Steve Waugh. Greg Applin, who in later years became the local Liberal State Government Member for Albury in a 16-year term, was appointed Team Liaison Officer for Zimbabwe during their stay. He explained his role and said it was a great experience and had in fact, with his Rhodesian background, a connection to members of the side, which had a large cross-section of players from which the side was chosen. Uh, basically to be um, the point of contact if they needed anything done, uh, if they needed to contact anybody, uh, if they needed any services, any particular drinks or refreshments, um, any dietary requirements. Uh, I remember having to organise a car to run somebody to get a physiotherapy appointment um, off the ground. They needed some particular treatment, so I had to organise that and make sure that they got back in time as well. Those sorts of things, if they needed any thing they'd forgotten, any 
clothing that uh, had gone been mislaid. Uh, you were the runner. You had to try to get it to them in the quickest possible time. It certainly was. Having worked very closely with Graham Hicks on the Festival of Sport, as it was uh, the committee from 1991 into 92, Graham found that I had actually been born in Northern Rhodesia and uh, lived for a large proportion of my life in Rhodesia, which is now Zimbabwe. Um, he said it would be a natural fit if I was interested. And absolutely, I love cricket. And um, I thought uh, I had known the names of the players. Obviously, I followed the careers as a liaison officer. We needed somebody for each team to be the runner, I suppose, and to do things that they needed. So yes, absolutely delighted to be involved. The Tricosses actually went to the same school as I did, um, which was then called Fort Victoria High School, now Victoria High School. The younger brother of John was actually in my class. We used to share a desk uh, at science uh, with the Bunsen burners and all those things that we got up to with uh, doing science. <laughs> so um, yeah, John had gone to the same school and a little bit later, he was at the same university as my brother. Obviously, he was advanced. He was doing a postgrad while my brother was doing an undergrad degree. So we did have some uh, family knowledge uh, and working with some of the players. Um, my brother played hockey against the younger brother of Dave Houghton, for instance, commented on extensively at the time that a lot of these people were weekend club players. A couple of them did have some experience overseas, uh, but that was certainly the minority. And you know, some of them were farmers, so they would be playing club cricket in their communities and uh, they would have to organise uh, to play and train uh, at, an, at a national level. And that meant quite a bit of travel for them to do two jobs. They're their normal daytime job and then coming and playing cricket for the country. So I guess in, in a lot of ways, they were probably no different than a lot of the local Aubrey border cricketers at the time. That's exactly right. They would have been exactly in that position. And unlike we saw uh, just recently when a T20 English player was called up, uh, these guys were, were not playing professionally. They were just doing their normal day-to-day uh, -day jobs and they'd be uh, drafted into the team, maybe a little bit of nets practice, uh, very little practice on the ground uh, before they... Uh, set off and much most of their experience would be gained by playing in these sorts of competitions. Uh, there wasn't a lot uh, that they could do to gain international experience uh, in Zimbabwe itself. Game day arrived and a crowd of over 6,000 enjoyed perfect autumn conditions. The majority of the locals jumped on the Zimbabwean bandwagon for the day, hoping for a major upset against the old colonial rivals. The Poms were well supported with plenty of tourists and backpackers enjoying the sunny conditions. The official Barmy Army was still two years away from its official launch. Ed O'Branders explains that despite no wins in the tournament going into their final game, the team's form was better than it appeared and some good performances had already been achieved. We hadn't, we hadn't heard a lot about Australia, New Zealand. To be, to be fair, we did a lot of flying in that World Cup, you know, being a, we'll send you to Albury, we'll send you to Napier. I remember sometimes, we, in fact, it might have been Albury. I think it was five flights to get from New Zealand to Albury. Yeah, something like that. So, yeah, there's quite a bit of time in that. But it, that's, if you're not the big guns, you get chivied around a bit. For us, it wasn't an issue. It's just as being there. So a lot of, I don't know if anyone had been to Australia. Maybe one or two had been there just on holiday. But most of us was first time and to New Zealand, it was just like, uh, when I say paid, paid vacation, you know, you're going to see this place. Oh, 
We'll play a game of cricket and then carry on and practice and have a, have a look. See, so everything was uh, new. And yeah, it was a really good World Cup. It was well run. It, yeah, there were, there's lots to do in Australia and New Zealand. We were always under the pump the whole time, obviously being yeah, ICC coming and, you know, not a test nation. Always our mantra was to come and put in a good performance that, you know, turn up and hopefully you can perform. So this is where the naivety of what we were about. That Sri Lanka game, and I don't know if, if you know some of these stats, it was Andy Flowers' first game. He got 100 on debut. It was the first time that a 300 had been scored in a one-day international and we held it for about four hours and Sri Lanka broke it. <laughs> So, you know, at that stage, and I'm sure if we, what we know now, and knowing the enormity of that, would bowl with maybe a little bit different, not to say that it would change, but, you know, there were one for 110, chasing 230, I think, something like that. And then the rain came. We had Pakistan in Tasmania. That game, I think, could have gone quite close. We had another game, rain dwarf. So, again, there were three results, could have being pretty close and it's mid-table sort of stuff. We just went to each game. We, we trained as hard as we could. We were super fit, really good feeling side. Part of the concept was, and the thought process was, right, we're playing against these three. They're probably better bowlers, better batters, but everyone can run, everyone can get fit and everyone can feel. We really drove those and, yeah, we, I think, were known as a pretty good fielding side for a long, long time. The, the Zimbabwe, it was one of the mantras that we went on and, and really fit, you know, ex-Springbuck rugby player that trained us, Ian Robertson. A pre-game highlight was the singing of the respective team's national anthems with local girl Katie Baldock singing God Save the Queen and then, for the first time during the World Cup, the Zimbabwean anthem was sung live at the venue by local lad Kane McAvale. As Graham Hicks explains, while Zimbabwean off-spinner Johnny Trakos also remembers the anthems and the pre-match dinner. Uh, Australian Cricket Board hadn't been able to have the national anthem sung as it is sung in, in Zimbabwe anywhere on the tour of prior to coming to Albury-Wodonga. So there was a young bloke in town at the time. His name uh, was Kane McAvale. Kane had a magnificent voice, did go on to some great things uh, for, for Disney and so forth. In about three weeks, Kane put together and sang in the Zimbabwe language, the national anthem, which goes for about seven minutes. Did a magnificent job. And I can tell you that as the players stood out on the ground before the start of the match, they all went off to do their job, uh, crying their eyes out. Unbelievable. It was a really moving moment. We uh, had a tradition amongst three or four of us on the side. You know, Edo, Edo Brandis was one, uh, Ali Shah, Kevin Arnott, myself. We used to go and have dinner before a man. This occasion, when we were playing in Albury, we invited Graham Hick along to join us, also a Zimbabwean, or grown up with Edo and with Kevin Arnott, and they had been to school based on the uh, Tour de France story, and so Edo's turn, and so he organised the dinner, which was at a restaurant in Albury, and uh, we had a lovely evening. Uh, Kevin KJ chose the wine. It was a South African Niederburg Rosé. Kevin was the, the wine sommelier, um, and we had good fun. A lot of banter and everything, and the end of the evening, um, as we know, we left, shook hands and left. Uh, Edo said, good luck, Hickey, but I'll have your wicket tomorrow for Zip. Had his fingers round in a big knot, and Hickey told him, I think, to piss off. Then we played the next day, and uh, it happened. Uh, Edo, Edo was on a high. I think he'd knocked over the top three batters there. He'd knocked over Gooch, knocked over Lamb, Smith, and, um, you know, Hickey got a good one. It wasn't an easy wicket, very uneven. But anyway, Edo produced a gem, which came back at Hickey. All surprising how these things happened. 
bit of banter post-match as well? Yeah, there was a little bit. Um, there certainly was. A lot of them, we had a few drinks and all that, and it was all good fun. It was good stuff. I'm not sure whether Hickey was having a comeback to us for pulling his leg the night before. They played the anthems, and uh, they played the Zimbabwe anthem, which is uh, Ishi Comberera Africa. You know, very few of us uh, embarrassingly so didn't know the words i'm sure some did so we sort of sat there and hummed and muttered and uh, looked looked sheepish i think is the best way to describe us and hickey was looking at us and uh, laughing and uh, when god save the queen was played he just said well at least i, I know my national anthem I was laughing at it um, it was good fun so all was set for the coin toss Graham Gooch actually won the toss and put Zimbabwe in, which was a bit of a surprise to us because we thought that he might decide to have a bat first to get himself and Alan Lamb into some sort of batting form. But he decided to let the bowlers have first use of the wicket. And so that was the Zimbabwean side that had to face England's best. And there was the England side. The uh, three left out were Lewis, Reeve and Pringle, who has this uh, cartilage injury, although he was telling us earlier on today that it wasn't too bad. Zimbabwe found the going tough against the bowling of Philip De Freitas, Gladstone Small and Ian Botham and lost three wickets by the first drinks break on a slow and up and down pitch. And uh, the first man out was Andy Flower who was bowling facing that ball from Philip De Freitas and he padded up, departed fairly sharply there. That was when the score was seven in the fifth over and he was uh, gone for two. David Lloyd, it was a careless sort of shot, wasn't it? Well, he decided to leave it and he's jumped and nipped back at him got the underside of the bat of the glove and just bounced onto the wickets. Here we go again, you can see the ball just leaping up and hitting the gloves and going down into the stump. So he's a bit unlucky, but he really perhaps shouldn't have been leaving it. So that was the end of Andy Flower, and uh, he was gone in the fifth over, as I say, seven for one. And now this was uh, another Andy, Highcroft, facing Ian Botham, and it was Graham Gooch, second slip, who took that one in great nonchalance. He was gone for three, that was 19 for two in the 11th. I suppose you just see this, that everything in the garden's rosy. Beefy gets in close, falls wicket to wicket, big drive, just a touch wide. But look at that, that's so easy, so nonchalant, throw it away, thank you very much. Let's get the rest of them out, let's knock them off. And it doesn't always work like that. England at this stage must have thought that everything was going terrifically well and uh, soon after Richard Illingworth came in to attack his first over and with a bit of juggling Wayne James was gone, caught and bowled Illingworth for 13, the 15th over this was and that was 30 for 3. The skipper Dave Houghton was next to the crease and despite showing great resilience the wickets continued to fall in the hour with the introduction of left arm off spinner Phil Tufnell bringing two of the next three wickets. Next man out was uh, Kevin Arnott facing the indomitable Mr Botham and that was plumb in anybody's book. Boff celebrated without the wiggle this time. The wiggle is obviously kept for just big occasions and Arnott was gone for 11, 52 for four in the 23rd over. Oh, beefy, a straight gun barrel ball, this beefy Botham ball. You can't beat a bit of bully. Great, fantastic straight, stone middle. No arguments there. No wiggle, as you said. Keep it for the big match. Sorry, Andy Waller facing the bowling of Tufnell. He was gone for nine there. 65 for five, Zimbabwe at this stage. This was in the 28th over. Not the greatest shot in the world. And once again, England... Uh, deciding that everything in the garden was rosy and uh, no problems at all. This was Shah, Alan Lamb just round the corner. Fort Lamb bowled Tufnell three, 77 for six in the 34. Two good dismissals there for Philip Tufnell. Two wickets he got, he bowled the ball in the right place. Nice flight, nice turn, just an easy lob up. 
Another man from a family with the glasses on, Lammy there. He's throwing it to Neil Fairbrother, hitting on the head. Zimbabwe, despite being bowled out with 23 balls remaining, added handy runs in the final 12 overs, with 57 being added in that final period after the second drinks break, with Houghton 29 and Ian Borchard 24 leading the way. So the next man out was Houghton. This was Gladstone Small bowling, and Houghton, the captain, goes for a pull. Doesn't really get hold of it. And there's Neil Fairbrother in mid-wicket, just hanging on to an easy catch, absolutely regulation catch. Houghton gone for 29. Zimbabwe at this stage were 96 for 7 and they're in the 38. Could play David Houghton but it's just on him a bit too quick, gets a splicer on it. Neil Fairbrother just an easy catch and again everything seems so easy there for England. Smiles all round. They weren't to know what was going to come later. Both of them to Butchart. Guess who's there? Fairbrother in mid-wicket. Thank you very much. Another simple catch. Butchart out for 24. Little stand has taken place there but that was 127 for 8 in the 44th over. Still no problems for England. Nice wicket-to-wicket bowling, Ian Botham. Just looking to get it over the leg side. Fairbrother as safe as houses. He catch those with his eyes closed, I'm sure. All easy at this stage. So there goes uh, Butchart. And the next one to go was the chicken farmer, Edo Brandis, who was about to become a real star. But as it was, it was a nice clinical piece of stumping by Alex Stewart, who's had a terrific World Cup as wicketkeeper, whatever anybody might say. And uh, that was a good piece of work by him. Brand has gone for 14, 127 for 9 in the 45th. Smashing work that by Alex Stewart. Just drags him down, he's out, always a foot and a half out. Smart Alex there, thank you very much. And so to uh, the final wicket, Illingworth strikes. Malcolm Jarvis, LBW Illingworth for 6. Zimbabwe were 134 all out. Jarvis wasn't quite sure that he was out, but uh, Alec told him quite quickly, and this was the end of him. Again, wicket to wicket stuff for the left arm spinner. Catches him straight on the boot. Big shout, up they go, and off he go. The England run chase started in sensational fashion that brought the enthusiastic Aubrey crowd to full voice. Exactly where it went horribly wrong for England. I hope you're of a strong disposition, because this is it. That was the first ball, Edo Brandes, bowling to Graham Gooch, the captain, LBW, North England, North for one, the very first ball of their innings, and what a terrific start for Zimbabwe. And if you're going to get him early, and that's how you're going to do it, you've got to ball straight, pitch it up, try to square him up, try to get him hitting it through the leg side. He just comes across the ball, falls over to the offside, and again, it hits him bullseye, it's a big shout, he's obviously out, he knows he's out, and very disappointed. Branders was at it again when he dismissed Alan Lamb, who was only playing his second match of the tour after suffering ongoing hamstring injuries. Lamb had captain England 14 months ago at Lavington when the tourists played New South Wales in a four-day fixture. Then, bowling from the northern end, Ali Shah, who was the first non-white player to be selected for Zimbabwe, claimed the big wicket of Ian Botham. A decision Botham appeared disappointed with. This is Alan Lamb, the second wicket to go. Brandis again, the bowler. Interesting shot, David. Annoyed, you can tell it there. He's out of form, out in it. Frustrated by injuries, he's got all sorts of problems. It's on him too quick from a medium paced bowler. He's very firm footed for me. He's very firm footed. Has a swipe at it, a swish. Up it goes. And he's off now, Lammy. He can't get off quick enough. He made 17. That was 2 for 32. And let's just have a look at it again. There it is. Simple catch in Zimbabwe got a second wicket, although even at this stage I'm sure they didn't possibly think of the uh, wonderful thing that was to happen, but Ian Botham was the next to go, 
caught at the wicket off the bowling of Shah. He had made 18. He looked a little dismayed by the decision. He was on his way. He knew he'd hit it. Again, disappointment. He lingered for a while, did Bob. But it's a good ball, that. That's ball to hurt the batsman. Just outside off stump, pushing defensively across to the offside, defending to extra cover. Thing, Nick, look at the keeper. He's delighted. 42 for three, England at that stage. The umpire to give both them out was New Zealander Brian Aldridge, who seven days later in the World Cup final at the Melbourne Cricket Ground in front of 90,000 fans gave IT Botham his marching orders again. And again, the great man was not happy. Botham later claimed the ball brushed his sleeve. He's gone. He's given Botham. Botham, uh, I think I can say without any fear of contradiction, is far from impressed by that. The carnage was to continue with Edo Branders breathing fire in a hostile spell, knocking out the stumps of Robin Smith and then Graham Hick as England lost three for two in 20 deliveries, leaving them reeling at five for 43 after 15 overs. And it was uh, a pretty frightful next one because uh, four, for four for 42 as Smith was bowled by Brandis for two. The old farmer, what is he, chicken farmer? Chicken farmer. He's a big lad, you're not going to argue with him too much. But he's a man inspired, and again, it's wicked to wicked bowling. That's a super delivery, he's got through the gate. Smith looking to drive, he's gone through, bat and pad, demolished the furniture. And now here we come to the age-old question, what are we going to do with Graham Hick? This was uh, him out for North. England 5 for 43 now, and Brandis is a complete hero, he's knocked over 4. Don't take any credit away from Edo Brandis, this is a super ball to a class batsman, getting in at his feet, he's very tall, Graham Hick, not on the board, off stump back, it's bullseye balling, look at the high stepper there, he's in there, down the wicket, yes, on your way. And he's got his old mate as well, because of course uh, Graham Hick used to be a Zimbabwean. For Edo Brandis, it was a surreal moment. Not only playing against one of his best mates in Graham Hick, but also taking his wicket, as Brandis reflects on his friendship with Hick. Well, we were at school together. Yeah, we were in the same hostel. And yeah, we were best, we were best mates at school. Um, he was three years younger than me, but because he was so good at cricket already then, he was in first, the first team when I was playing, yeah. And then we had another family in Zimbabwe, which was also very, very close to myself. The, the Pennies, who Trevor Penny was, uh, he's coached a little bit around the world. And in fact, he, he was probably one of the best fielders in the world. I can speak you know, on the county circuit. It's, it's, he's well revered. Yeah, so we and his brother was the same age as Graham. So the four of us used to really hang out um, a lot on the weekends. We used to go to the Penny's house because Graham and I were boarders. So on Sundays we'd go out to them and have lunch and yeah, we were forever. It was Trevor and I being the oldest and youngest against those two Muppets. Yeah, so we're always forever bouncing cricket balls across the swimming, I mean tennis balls across the swimming pool or playing tennis, squash, kicking a ball, whatever it was, throwing catches, throwing as far as you can and so on and so on. Yeah, so that that's where that started. Then Graham got, you know, he was exceptionally good and then Zimbabwe Cricket at that time organised a scholarship for him to go to Worcester. So he got to Worcester and very quickly I said, well, hold on, there's something here. We better see how we can uh, get him to convert. Now, that was before we had test status. Who would have thought you and Graham 
great mates at school, knock around together. We'd be in opposing sides in a World Cup. It's just incredible, you know. When we arrived in opening ceremony, so obviously straight up by hands and ground for a while, and he just played a season in Queensland. He was obviously Ian Healy and Craig McDermott were from Queensland. So they all were together. I was filming the foyer. I said, you know, what's happening tonight? Well, yeah, we got the opening ceremony, and then we were going for it couple of beers. So they're gone. Then I was in with, you know, these Australian icons and which started a really great friendship of mine with Ian Healy's from that. So there are two Australians and I don't know that we went out in Sydney. Well, I don't know. Sydney, they said, oh, we go here. This is where we go. We play test matches. Yeah, I'll come along and that. We had a few beers and that. It was a great evening. And that's so we caught up there. And then everyone split and went their own ways um, with their teams. Met yep. up with England, obviously, prior to the game, and in the um, so yeah, so we do think they do their thing. I do remember we at lunchtime, and I said had lunch just outside on the steps with Graham. We were sitting, chatting, whatnot through the lunch. Um, bear in mind, you know, he played with all of us in the team. You know, <laughs> Dave Hout, myself. Yeah, we were all at the same club. You know, so yeah, then we bowled in the afternoon, and then. Any banter like, yeah, I'm going to knock you over? I can't remember of anything like that. But, yeah, well, just obviously we're going to, well, we didn't have enough to really challenge him and say, you know, we're going to knock you over. And then just, you know, as cricket is, it's, uh, you just don't know what's going to happen. But, yeah, it was just a great day. Greg Applin said the Zimbabwean team was just happy to be part of such a big tournament and wanted to put on a good show and were a bit disappointed after they batted. But as wickets started to tumble, they got very optimistic. Well, they were really happy to be involved in the international series. Uh, this was, I think, their last match. I think they were heading home after it. So uh, they were just hoping to put up a good show. They would have known many of the players in the English team, particularly those guys who had some international experience. They would have come across them. Uh, for others, it might have been their first time uh, encountering uh, the likes of Gray and Gooch. Yeah, I think they were just hoping to put up a good show. So it was their last game. Let's let's give it everything we've got, guys, was the um, basic feeling. The guys, we were sitting in the stands uh, with the team and uh, they were annoyed with themselves uh, when they were dismissed. Uh, and yes, you're right. It was a lowish score compared to the modern scores. It was a very low score. However, um, they were going out there to defend it and do what they could. And first ball, can you believe it? Gooch couldn't believe it either. And they suddenly started to think, well, hey, we've got an opportunity to dismiss some of these English. Uh, let's go for it. And <laughs> uh, apart from, uh, I think, Alex Stewart, yes, he put up a bit of a, um, Fair Brother put up a bit of a um, stand. Uh, the wickets continued to fall. So it became more and more exciting as the match progressed. Alex Stewart and Neil Fairbrother were now at the crease. And with both players in good form leading into the match, it was no surprise to see them steady the sinking ship with a fine six-wicket stand that appeared to have steered the Poms into safer waters when it hit another snag. Partnership with Alex Stewart and Neil Fairbrother together, the, the pair that, if you like, won that game against South Africa. And if anybody in this England side is in form, it's Stewart. Yeah, the old firm, as we say, rapidly becoming Stewart Fairbrother, get us out of the hole. He promised to do it again. It's another classy Stewart shot. Again, through the offside, looks to drive well. Just looks as if they would win the game. If anybody has really come on on this tour, you would have to say it's Alex Stewart, wouldn't you? 
and Alfie stopped all the doubt and he said that he couldn't play, he's a very fine player. However, there's another one, these two had actually done really well and they've taken the score up to 95 before that happened. Now, did that one look as though it stopped from you a little bit? Rafferty just stopped and held on him, but the telltale sign is but on a wicket like that, you've got to play straight. Now, he's played right across that, and again, he's fallen over to the offside. He's looking to play at leg side, got a leading edge, and it's skewed out to cover. England's problem started then. Yeah, he was the top scorer with uh, 29. Shortly after, Philip De Freitas played a horrible shot, as beautifully summed up by David Bumble Lloyd. And then Fairbrother fell for a leg side trap, and all of a sudden, England were in dire trouble. With two wickets left and 27 still required for victory, the locals were loving it and could smell blood in the water. And there is Philip de Freitas gone. And what would you like to say about that shot when you've got Neil Fairbrother at the other end trying to win the game for you? Only one thing to say, head full of rocks. Coming to the office, can I have a word? Bought flower bowl butcher for four, 101 for seven. And this was the end of uh, Neil Fairbrother, gone for 20. Just bounced down the leg side, and that's a, a, a batsman, you think that's a touch of a strangle. He does bounce, and he's just got the wrong side of the ball. Fenced at it with a glove, obviously got a big glove on it. Went back and had a look at the umpire. Just down, it's bounced up normally, really. Got a glove on it, it's just blown through to the keeper. Nice, comfortable catch. 108 for eight. Richard Illingworth, who had earlier taken three wickets, was joined by Gladstone Small at the crease and the pair moved the score to eight for 124 before disaster struck in a horrible mix-up as Andy Pycroft threw the stumps down at the velodrome end. Then, one run later, the unthinkable had happened. This was the end of uh, Richard Illingworth, a direct hit, great piece of fielding, and Illingworth has run out. That's just what you need when you're in a tight situation. When things don't go well for you, they don't go well for you. You don't need that. A couple of wickets left, and you're trying to eke every run out of the situation. But it's a direct hit, it needed it, it's a brave throw. Can't tell if anybody was backing up there. That's a feature of the World Cup, super fielding. 124 for nine, and this was Gladstone Small and Zimbabwe has had their Waterloo and Christmas is rolled into one because Gladstone has gone, fought Pycroft bowled Jarvis for five and England chasing 1-3-5 to win a bowled out for 125. Yeah, mm -hmm. lifting and flicking Gladstone there, he's just flicked his head to mid-wicket. Moment of glory, a big moment of glory for Zimbabwe. Very, very worrying moments for England who now have to pick themselves up and get themselves sorted out for a semi-final. Hundreds of fans carrying Zimbabwean flags flooded onto the ground as the English supporters in the outer were left dumbfounded at the nine-run loss. Greg Applin explained the team's delight. Yes, what a high that was. They were they couldn't believe it. And um, to have taken the catches, dismissed uh, uh, the English team, and of course uh, having the ground really behind them, the spectators, uh, sure there was a contingent of English supporters, but everyone liked the underdog, and um, they were absolutely the underdog, and uh, they were beating the English. So what could go <laughs> better for an Australian crowd at uh, the Lavington Oval? They were on top of the world and went down and had some, let's say, liquid refreshment in the changing rooms. and. You know, it was great to see some of the English team actually pop. I've got a photograph of um, Ian Botham coming down to share a, a drink with uh, with them and congratulate them. The English um, couldn't believe it, but, you know, for them, it, it didn't stop their progress, but uh, it was a bit of a morale <laughs> blow. 
The victory was only the second win by Zimbabwe in a World Cup match, with its last victory coming against the Kim Hughes-led Australians in 1983 at Nottingham, its first ever World Cup game. Man of the match was Edo Branders with his fiery four-wicket spell. However, another star performer was 44-year-old veteran John Tracos, who finished with no wickets for 16 off his 10 overs. Zimbabwean skipper David Houghton labelled at the time Tracos as the best one-day spinner in the world. Tracos recalls the game and the aftermath. I guess that sort of game where it's a uh, low-scoring game, not much to protect. Uh, my role was to try and keep things tight. And after Edo got us into a really good position by knocking over top four batters, uh, it was a question of, you know, could we, uh, people like Fairbrother, and, you know, he sort of must have been surprised because everybody else had bowled that day, had turned the ball, even bounce. Uh, there were times he was unplayable. And the other guys all bowled well. Ian Butchot bowled well, picked up two wickets at the end. So, you know, it was sort of a, we contained, 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 uh, and the pressure built. Even at the end when I think they were eight down, Richard Illingworth was batting, you know, and he, he wasn't the worst. He was, he seemed to have, he looked like he, you know, could, could pull it off. KJ, Kevin Arnott hit the wickets that the bowlers seen sideways on and ran him out. It was a lovely bit of fielding. At sort of that, that point, we realised, I think we were there. Then it sort of, soon after that, I think Gladstone Small shook the ball uh, off his legs, uh, off Malcolm Jarvis to Andy Pycroft, who picked him up at uh, backward square leg. It was, a, you know, for us, an exciting victory and I think a big turnabout. So I think the locals were happy because I don't think they liked seeing England win. Yeah, and it was a very similar situation other way around in 1983 when we beat Australia at Trent Bridge. Every, every pom uh, in Nottingham was buying us drinks because they just love to see Australia get beaten. So it was, it was reversed, I guess. We seem to have uh, played a little part of in history in that regard. But uh, but certainly it was it was a good celebration afterwards. I mean, the English guys were great. You know, Ian Botham, we knew he'd been out to Zimbabwe. And obviously Robin Smith, Alan Lamb, well-known, Hickey. You know, all the guys came in. It was really good social stuff. But it was, um, it, you know, it was really good. I mean, I, I was reading up about it actually the other day and uh, they were so tired after the World Cup and the injuries. They were a little bit lacklustre in that game. But anyway, it was for us a, a historic moment. Tracos's career remains one of the international cricket's greatest stories. A Greek born in Egypt who played for both South Africa and Zimbabwe and now living in Australia. His test debut was for South Africa in the 1970 series against Australia in Durban before South Africa were cast into isolation for the next two decades due to its apartheid policies. Remarkably, he made his international return playing in Zimbabwe's first four test matches. His gap between test match appearances of 22 years and 222 days, geez, Richie would love that, is a record. He made his last appearance for Zimbabwe less than two months before his 46th birthday. He was the last Rhodesian to have represented South Africa in test cricket. In Zimbabwe's inaugural test, he took five for 86 in 50 overs, including the wicket of a then 19-year-old Sachin Tendulkar, caught and bowled for naught. At the 1992 World Cup, Tracos was the oldest player and Tendulkar was the youngest. Tracos, like so many others at the time, fled Zimbabwe and migrated to Perth with his family in 1997 for political reasons. Tracos reflected on his and the team's journey in that period to gain acceptance. I guess I was lucky to play test cricket in 1970. I mean, we were 
And then I played for Rhodesia in the Curry Cup in 1968-69. They were looking for spinners. And so it was really just a question of who thought you were good enough to, to take it on. I'd sort of, I guess, had the support of Ali Baha, the Springbok captain, uh, Trevor Goddard, who was uh, the senior professional who, in fact, was our coach at university. I was at university in uh, Natal in Durban at that stage. Surprisingly, I, I got the nod for the second test in Durban. I was incredibly lucky to play that, a huge experience. Then obviously there were, uh, we finished, uh, we played the 70s, 1970s, then the South African Curry Cup, uh, Rhodesia participated right through to 1980. In 1980, uh, Zimbabwe came of age, was an official country, and uh, you know obviously links to South Africa were severed. Then commenced the process of getting test status. Now, as early as 1980, we started bringing in uh, uh, county sides. Middlesex and Leicester toured in 1980-81. And then we started having teams of administrators were fantastic. You know, people like Dave Woman Brown, Alvin Pachanik, Peter Chingoka. They were absolutely brilliant. They organised. We had two tours every year, one at the beginning of the season, one at the end. And these involved, we had New South Wales come out a couple of times. Uh, we had junior uh, international teams. So uh, countries like the West Indies would send a team made up of four or five test players and then the young promising guy. Now, people like Des Haynes came out in 1981 and then they bought a few quicks like Malcolm Marshall, Wayne Daniel. Uh, and those tours were very popular because Zimbabwe funded them. You know, they had to be able to get these guys there because we had very, very strong support base in uh, local industry and business. There was a lot of a lot of support in, in a very uh, amateur environment, but we were able to get the teams there, and we saw some really really good cricket. We saw some very fine players who were either starting off their careers, you know, people like Jeff Dujon, Brian Lara, Steve Waugh, Mark Taylor, and they look they all those guys. You chat to them now, and they they said they were fantastic trips because they were able to come to Africa. Uh, Zimbabwe was very well organised. They they could see all the tourist stuff, you know, all the wildlife, uh, and the hospitality was excellent. So we, we, we saw a lot of good cricketers, played against a lot of good cricketers, and generally we did well against those sides. We held our own against the West Indies. We gave the Australian sides a bit of a run, but it, it was good. It was good cricket, good quality cricket, and that kept the standard up. You know, it was 10 years of... So those tours... That would really give you that good top-up you needed. I guess you were playing club cricket, but yeah. you needed that next level. Did Absolutely. It was a bit of a unique situation in, in Zimbabwe because you had you didn't really have a proper first-class competition. So your two provinces were Matabililand, which was the Bulawayo area, and Mashonaland, which was the Harare area. They played various times what they called the Logan Cup over three days. Your strength lay in your weekly league cricket. And, and most of the sides, there weren't many sides, there were probably about half a dozen sides, And but they all had a, a sprinkling of good cricketers. You had a fair bit of good cricket at that level, but you did need those tours, and those tours were all part of the building process where you established relationships with countries, uh, you got to respect respect for your performances and kept you informed in between the, the path that we had of getting to the World Cup, uh, being able to compete at the World Cup in, on three occasions and do well. Uh, it sort of was, was all part of a process, but it worked out fairly well. While well, Edo Branders said it was a fun celebration with some generosity from Ian Botham and sticking it to Jeff Boycott, making it even better. In a sense, it almost all happened and then... Oh, Mark, what's happened now? And away we go, you know, because you don't go, we'll warm up and say, oh, I'm going to go, we could sort of first, well, you 
in your mind, you're probably always saying, I'm going to get a wicket every ball. It doesn't happen. When it did happen, well, that was a start. Then there was a, they put a bit of a partnership together. And then Alan Am got out. Wickets just kept dropping off. The victory, no doubt, was very well celebrated. few of the English players joined in the change rooms? Well, not so much in the change rooms. I think it was a little bit of anger there. Because there was that, that great story of um, boycott. It came and Dave Houghton had just gone to the loo at lunchtime and boycott came in and the, yeah, he sort of said to Dave Houghton, you guys are ridiculous. How you guys battered, you know, the, the English pros are just going to show you how we'll just nerdle it around for one and two and just get that score. The story, guys, that at, after the game, yeah, there were quite a few people trying to look for Jeff Boycott, but couldn't find it. Yeah, he, he had scarpered. So, so it was a little bit quiet. We obviously enjoyed it in the change room and then got back to the hotel and somewhere we'd said to Graham, and yeah, he was always going to catch up with us. And then we were, we were sitting in the pub in the hotel. By then, we were on top of the world. <laughs> Unbeatable. So obviously, it was a bit raucous and rowdy and good fun. And Ian both walked past. He reversed in his tracks and said, oh, shit, you guys are having a good time. And he came and sat down with us. So he sat there for a while. Yeah, he was he, he picked up the tab for a whole lot as well. So, yeah, he he was really good about that. You know, and he, like he said, oh, it's a game of cricket. Yeah, we all tried our best and it didn't go for us. And, yeah, he picked up a fair bit of the tab. I, I do remember that. And then, yeah, we, we carried on when he said, okay, I've uh, been here long enough. I'm, I'm going. And then, so, yeah, that, no, that was good. The timing of the victory was immense as the country's cricket hierarchy were pushing the ICC to gain full test match playing accreditation. This was achieved in July 1992 when the ICC elevated Zimbabwe from associate membership to full ICC status. Edo Branders and eight other teammates from the Aubrey World Cup winning side played in that first ever Zimbabwe side to play test cricket. They played India at home in October 1992. The match was drawn. Branders never lost the chicken farmer tag, but also said the great day in Aubrey certainly didn't harm their application for full test playing status. Look, I was a chicken farmer in Zimbabwe. I just had bought my farm. But yeah, I was a chicken farmer. Yeah, we had other farmers. It just happened to be a day that it was me. What, oh, what do you do? Are you a chicken farmer? Yeah, so it was a chicken farmer. And that, oh, that's how I suppose it's carried me for a while because later on, England came to Zimbabwe in 97. And yeah, I got a one day hat trick against them. So, you know, and then they, yeah, that whole thing carried on. So, yeah, I was uh, the chicken farmer all, all through playing, you know. How was the victory received back in the homeland? Surely that must have played a, a big part in getting full ICC acceptance later in that later that year. Yeah, I think so. I think that's, that's why I say deep down, I think the performance at the 92 World Cup, there were some really sort of good ones like Sri Lanka. And then we had there a couple of the other ones where we sort of competing pretty well and not just uh, easy beats. So I think when that or – and then we beat England who were vetoing against us to get it. Well, they're going to veto us when we're just beating them. <laughs> so I think because Australia – and um, England had they had a veto vote if, for a better way. So their vote could be overriding over all the other votes or something. That's how it was set up initially. Yeah. So now what? What you're going to say we're not good enough to play this cricket when you just beaten you? So I think that all helped. And there were a number of applications before. And they said no, go and do that. So then we'd go and do that. Uh, you know, some of it took. Part of it was to have more coaches and to have professional players. And yeah, so yeah, 
when we got test status, I think we only had four professionals. And then the following year, there were probably seven. A year after that, 11. And the year after that, about 15. You know? So as the test cricket came, because there was a fair bit of money, obviously, with TV and that, with the test cricket, that brought in a bit. So then they started paying more players as you know, and then it operated like a professional outfit. Brandis also reflected back on how the lack of quality practice equipment, such as cricket balls, in fact, had him and skipper Dave Houghton discover the art of reverse swing that was, at the time, unheard of. Obviously, when we first got into the cricket and everything was always tight, there was no currency and that. So, that cricket gear was, we had to go out the country to get it or when we went touring, cricket balls was always an issue. You know, it wasn't roll up and two new balls every practice just to get going and that, you know. They were eventually bowling with old balls and I'll never forget I can't remember exactly in the, in the scheme of things, but at some stage, balls were an issue. Dave Houghton, who was an exceptional batter, and he, he came to me and said, why are you bowling in swing? I said, I'm not bowling in swing. I'm holding it exactly the same. I'm bowling exactly, and then we fiddled with actions, and we fiddled. Looking back, it was reverse swing without knowing what it was about, and that was because the balls were that old, yeah, it was reverse swing. That's what it was. And he said, it's going the other way. Why? And we didn't know, you know. But when it all came out, and I remember that story, and Dave was saying, Jesus, get it outside off. It's going down leg. It's going down leg. You know, I was like, mate, I don't know why. You know, what's going on? No one knew, you know. But, yeah, I know, yeah it wouldn't have only been me. There would have been other stories around the world of that happening. But we did not know about it. Pakistan, we're good at it. They'd worked it out and what it was, you know, and that's where they could talk about it. But, yeah, that, that was reverse swing. <laughs> we didn't know why, why it was happening. By being put in a situation, old balls, and then suddenly something else happened, but we couldn't explain it. Greg Applin, he speaks about the whole event, the upset win, and the role in the community that he played. Uh, it was exciting, I think, for the whole community in Albury-Wodonga and really the surrounds to have an international match here in Lavington, uh, so much so that many of the schools organised buses to transport the students to the match because this was a great opportunity to, to see international cricket in your home area. And um, my son was amongst others who was transported from Faguna to the grounds. We were lucky enough to have a flag, so he was able to display that. Look, he felt important with his classmates uh, on the day and uh, look it's just had a great time being involved and, and I, I think the whole community embraced the idea and uh, fantastic that we could host an international match of that caliber it, it was good it was the old um, the old country as it were um, getting one up on the English and uh, that, that went down very well <laughs> very well indeed <laughs> for the underdogs to get up like that was an unbelievable experience and we were there to celebrate and play a little role The result was a fitting reward for skipper David Houghton, who gave so much to his beloved country during and after his career. As teammate John Tracos explained. He had great innovative skill. Uh, He was a tremendous ball player, but he played hockey for Rhodesia. He was a goalkeeper, but he was a good tennis player. He played every sport. He was a natural. And he developed his game. I played played with him initially in in the latter part of the Curry Cup season in the late 70s. 
when he first played for Rhodesia. And he developed from a guy with a really good eye, great ball skills, into a top, top player. He had the ability to turn a game. He was innovative, he played the reverse sweep, he could play everything. He worked out the game, he had a very good cricketing brain, could work out how to play guys. So he was a good captain. He was vice captain to me for a while and was absolutely brilliant. And then uh, as a captain, he was outstanding, uh, pushing things and managing things. As a person, he was totally committed to Zimbabwe cricket. He loved the country, loved the game. One of the great things he did is he was instrumental in starting the Cricket Academy in Zimbabwe on his own. He had for years, as when he was coaching, had pushed for an academy and pushed for an academy, but for various reasons, the Zimbabwe Cricket Union didn't want to spend the money. So he, on his own, did what Ian Botham did, raised money for charity. David did it for the Cricket Academy. He started his walk and he got his mates, businesses to donate money, and he eventually established on the, off his own bat, with all this money he raised, he established the Cricket Academy in Harare. It was just all for, for the good of cricket, and it was a major, major contribution. You know, he's a guy who had his heart and soul in it, you know, apart from being, I think, one of the best cricketers we've produced in, in Zimbabwe. An extremely, extremely capable guy. The 1992 World Cup, uh, England had already qualified. They were pretty much the favourites by this stage of the competition. And they came up against a Zimbabwe side who hadn't won any of their 18 previous ODIs. I think the last game they'd won in an ODI was their very first in 1983, so it was a mismatch. England had never played Zimbabwe at all before Edo Brandes uh, won the match at Albury. And uh, Albury, a, a little town, never had an international match. In fact, it still hasn't. This is the only international match Albury has ever staged. Edo Brands was the guy who, who won the, the game for Zimbabwe, and he's often dismissed as, you know, the chicken farmer who bowled England out. Actually, he was a really good bowler. Brands was famously a chicken farmer. Any subworthy salt could write headlines that day about England as headless chickens and uh, Brands as the chicken farmer. And that day, England had restricted Zimbabwe to a really small town, and you would have thought it was a straightforward procession to victory. Interestingly, Jeff Boycott wandered into the Zimbabwe dressing room halfway through the game to, to get some cricket balls signed from the uh, Zimbabwe captain, Dave Houghton. Boyce told Houghton that the match was over, that England had just go out on a very difficult pitch, actually at Albury, a, a seeming pitch, uh, not really up to international standard perhaps. And Boyce said that England would just push the ball around, take the ones and two and twos and, and win with several overs to spare. But England had all these batsmen with very high backlifts. They're Gooch and Smith and Hick. And Brands was really smart. He bowled full, quite sharp. The four for 21 he took in the World Cup he dismissed uh, Graham Gooch first ball with a quick full-length ball LBW. And then uh, it was Southern Africans who uh, fell to him after that. Alan Lamb, Graham Hick, Robin Smith. He bowled straight and he bowled uh, briskly. He'd been in poor form uh, before that match. He got it right that day. I don't know if it was intentional, whether he had highlighted that that was a weakness in their game, but he bowled all three of them with full swinging balls. And uh, there wasn't really anything lucky about it at all. It was just a, a, another humiliating reverse for England. And what's odd is that after all these years of failure, really, in World Cups, it's odd that they would ever be complacent. He works now in tomatoes. Everybody still thinks he's a chicken farmer in Zimbabwe. He actually farms tomatoes on the Sunshine Coast in uh, Australia. Well, what a story that one was. What a result that launched the cricketing nation of Zimbabwe into world cricket recognition and status. Another huge thank you to episode sponsors, 
premier building and construction who pride themselves on being community focused with traditional values for clients. PBC work on a variety of commercial, industrial and residential projects with an emphasis on leaving a local legacy while forming strong partnerships with clients to achieve successful outcomes. We'd also like to thank Essence of Harrogate. It's a local beverage business in Wodonga that is bringing global to local. Get to enjoy luxury, alcoholic and non-alcoholic flavours from around the world without leaving your house. Check out essenceofharrogate.com.au And just like they were back in 1992, Aubrey City are still supporting major events in the region. For now, stay safe, thanks for listening and we'll catch you again on Glory Days.